This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. After listening to this episode, be sure to click the link in the show notes to access top-notch videos created by the team at Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist Hospital. The videos are superb. They do an awesome job at demystifying common bile duct exploration and spell out how you can start a program at your center. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today, we're talking about laparoscopic common bile duct exploration. From Behind the Knife, this is Shanaz Hussain one of the Surgical Education Fellows, and we are joined today by Dr. Maggie Bosley, Dr. Luke Neff, and Dr. Fernando Santos. Dr. Bosley is a graduating chief resident at Wake Forest and an incoming MIS fellow at WashU. Dr. Luke Neff is an associate professor of surgery and pediatrics at Wake Forest University. Dr. Santos is an MIS-trained general surgeon and assistant professor of surgery at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. He's actually been working on laparoscopic common bile duct explorations since 2009 when he was a research resident at Northwestern. He was one of the co-inventors for a laparoscopic common bile duct simulator that is now used to train surgeons. He's part of Sagesafe Coley Task Force and has been leading numerous laparoscopic common bile duct exploration courses over the years. Thank you so much for all of you to join us today on Behind the Night. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, we can dive right in. Why are we talking about laparoscopic um, bile duct explorations today? So it's a great question. I think that one of the things that has made this topic uh, more interesting is the fact that it's been around since the early 90s. There's nothing new about laparoscopic common bile duct exploration or the fact that surgeons can manage this disease process in the operating room under one anesthetic. That's been known, but as we've looked over the case logs for graduating chief residents over the, the last 20 years, and Dr. Bosley's done this, we see that the numbers have just dwindled, especially as the endoscopists have started to leverage more ERCP technologies and been more aggressive with that. And that pathway from you know patient with a, a diagnosed or suspected choleodicolithiasis has just become very well worn in that direction. And so as a surgical community, we've essentially abdicated our role in the management of, of common duck stones to them. And there are a few people out there that are still kind of holding the torch and, and saying, hey, we can do this as surgeons. And, and Dr. Santos is certainly one of those. So I think that with new technologies coming down the pike and with techniques that are time tested, the time is right to raise our hands and say, hey, this is something that surgeons can be doing. It, it actually is safe and effective, and it benefits not only our patients, but our healthcare systems. And from a training standpoint, I think it's really valuable, especially when we send surgeons out in the world who may find themselves in places where there's not ready access to ERCP or advanced endoscopy. So there's a host of reasons why surgeons should be essentially taking back the common duck from an operative standpoint for the management of stone disease. So... Look, you know, one of the things that we have 
really focused on with uh, sacral cystectomy and the sacral movement has been not only essentially first do no harm, but secondly, take care of bile duct stones. I think that is sort of after reducing bile duct injury, the second biggest opportunity for quality improvement as we look at colostectomy today. 10 to 15% of patients at some point during their care of needing their gallbladder operated on will have common bile duct stones. And I think, as Luke said, there are so many reasons why now the time is different than in the early 90s when doing a lap coli was a six-hour difficult case. I think, though, embracing lap common duct expiration also means embracing a surgery-first mindset. When we look at taking these patients straight to the operating room because we have the ability to clear the stones, we're eliminating so many other things like need for MRCP, need for trending labs, needing to involve GI and get a second team to consult. We found at Wake that if you embrace the surgery-first mindset, even if you take somebody to the operating room and you fail to clear the stones, they still get out of the hospital faster than if you intended just to do an ERCP in the first place. Because you can go to your GI colleagues and say, look, we've already identified the stones. They're there. They don't need any additional workup. They don't need an MRCP. They still don't need those labs trended. And so the endoscopist can get them on the schedule same day. And so you're still helping get patients out of the hospital quicker. That's a huge consideration when we think about healthcare resource utilization and the fact that Every decreased length of stay or even half day is an open bed that can you know, generate more hospital revenue, but also so that we can continue to take care of patients uh, in the era of staffing shortages and hospital overcrowding. A group out of UT Southwestern had published recently talking about how there are certainly length of stay benefits and overall financial benefits for going to the operating room first, even if you have no intention of doing a conduct exploration. Yeah, I think the other thing to consider is the endoscopy environment as well. We actually have more of a concentration of ERCP in fewer centers. There's actually less access than there used to be. In the ERCP world, there's actually more focus on reducing both unnecessary ERCPs and and bad outcomes. And so that has actually, in, in many places, contracted the pool of people that actually do ERCP. And so surgeons are actually faced with an interesting landscape in which it's harder to get ERCP and it's more frequent that they're going to be transferring patients because there's literally probably nobody at some centers that that does it. And so for us working at a small VA, that was one of the really motivating factors for us to get involved in learning how to do this. Well, thank you for that great overview of laparoscopic bile duct exploration. But as you know, we're not doing it. Is there any data to show how infrequently this is actually done? Yeah, we actually pulled all the ACGME data of graduating chief residents since the late 90s up until a couple years ago. And as you can imagine, the number of lap coli's chief residents are doing during their residency has just steadily increased every single year. But in this light, the lap common duct expirations is basically a flat line. Chief residents are doing about one in total over their entire residency. And while there's data out there to also describe national trends, you can imagine that what chief residents are doing is a reflection of what's happening in the large academic centers around the country and what the attendings are doing. And there's a lot of reasons and a lot of barriers that have been recognized and voiced. We recently did a survey to assess what surgeons around the country are thinking and and what are their biggest barriers. And the same few things keep coming up. 
it's they have easy access to ERCP. They have little time. For, so for some people, it makes more sense to knock out an extra lap coli than it does to take the extra time to do a common duct expiration from a financial perspective. Getting together the equipment and training your staff. If you have, you know, new staff every day of the week and they're not familiar with the supplies. So that's often a big barrier, but something that can be overcome with a, a pretty easy intervention. We advocate for, and I know Dr. Santos advocates for, is to create an OR cart. Having all the necessary equipment and tools that you're going to need for your exploration on a mobile cart that they can bring to your operating room. The last piece is the education, personally, for the surgeon. There's courses, runs through SAGES, but trying to reach the entire country and bring everyone up to speed when you can only reach 15 people at a time once a year, that's tough, right? And so how do we disseminate this knowledge? And people who are out in practice, how do they learn new techniques that aren't attached to money? There's no big industry money attached to teaching people how to thread a wire and maybe use a balloon. So that's another barrier that we found. These are very important to address. First, the education, I would say. Unfortunately, we still primarily rely on the model of operative experience being the primary teaching modality in residency. So if you're not doing a lot of these cases, not seeing a lot of these cases, you're going to really have no confidence in going out and starting to do this on your own. You do what you see in residency. So part of that can be addressed with simulation. It's really the only way to address that because you're not just going to start magically doing a lot of cases. This is one of the things that we started addressing in the lab when we created the simulator. The model that we created helped simulate fluoroscopy without radiation. So I think that is a huge thing to be able to actually practice operation numerous times outside of the operating room. There's no time pressure. I think the other point that Maggie made about equipment is the other pillar. We have to think about doing this as a new clinical service line. And how does that happen? You got to get all your stuff in the room on your cart so that the staff does not leave the room. Turns out if you actually pay close attention and you set up your equipment, you're organized and your logistics are looked after, it really doesn't require a lot of staff training. You basically have to tell the staff, open drawer number one, pull out this gadget and put it on the field and you are walking them through it if you are familiar with that. What you don't want to do is have them need to leave the room for every case. I just want to emphasize a couple of things with respect to the kit and uh, types of modalities that you're using to access the common bile duct and to intervene. All of that stuff takes some muscle memory. What you can do to tip the balances in your favor is making sure that you really understand the integration of the wires and the catheters. If you're using reusable or disposable cholidocoscopy, that you understand how to set that up. All of those things just lower the pain threshold in the operating room. I think it's really important to have some of that prep work and that foundation. What are some indications for a laparoscopic common bolic expiration? In what situations would you say, like, let's not do it on this patient? Indications really are any patient that still has their gallbladder and needs their gallbladder out. So, I mean, this is the whole spectrum. Symptomatic, uncomplicated gallstones, you know, gallstone pancreatitis, a suspected common duct stone, you know, in the presence of, of gallstones. Those patients all really need intervention. There's really no role for 
ERCP and then watch and wait for those patients, unless they're truly not operative candidates. You know, if, if we have patients that are so comorbid that you you never want to operate on, okay, fine. You know, but most patients can tolerate a cholecystectomy. Now, contraindications that we uh, really have are the patients that are have cholangitis, they have organ failure, okay? Pressors, you know, acute renal failure, uh, other organ failure. Uh, those patients are best served with endoscopic clearance first and then uh, surgery down the road. Other patients, you know, severe pancreatitis, those patients you don't want to operate on right away. Th those patients really need about a six-week period to, to cool off and recover from their illness. The other big group that we shouldn't forget about is the patients that could have malignancy, okay? So if the story is just, there's something fishy about it, painless jaundice, weight loss, you know, something is just off. Maybe there's some thing on the imaging that's, that's sketchy. Don't take those patients to surgery. Those patients need EUS. They need possibly ERSP with brushings. You need to figure out and make sure that there's not a cancer that you're dealing with. You don't want to be surprised by that in the operating room. Pediatric surgeon here. One of the things that I would also advocate for if I added that list when you think about the younger patients is just congenital anomalies of the biliary tree that can lead to cholestasis. You certainly don't want to get in there and find out that you're actually dealing with a choideal cyst or something like that that requires a little bit more planning and imaging. And I think we need to dive into how do we even do this? What really is it? What are the nuts and bolts of doing a common duct expiration? I think it's important for the audience to understand what are the two main methods that we're talking about. So there's transcystic and transcolodocal or through a cholodocotomy. So transcystic, the idea is that you're only making an incision on the cystic duct. Transcolodocal, you're actually making an incision on the common bile duct. So there's some differences. Transcystic depends on your cystic duct anatomy. You have to be able to access the biliary tree through that to be able to do what you need to do. Cholodocotomy, you can really access any location of the biliary tree, proximal, distal, uh, really address any size stone. The obvious problem with the cholodocotomy is you can't just cut it and then leave. You have to close it. So this really is a technique which requires good dissection skill and very good laparoscopic suturing. So I don't think that it's really for mass consumption. That is a technique that certain individuals obviously will have the, the skill to do. But what we want to focus on is transcystic, because with transcystic, you really don't have to do anything directly to the bile duct. So we feel that that's a better uh, safety profile, and I think it's more easy to generalize. I, I think that's what we are going to be focusing our efforts on. It's important that the GI uh, endoscopy community also understand that that's what we're doing. Oftentimes, they have really no understanding that we're even talking about transcystic. What we start with at WAKE and what Dr. Santos does too is we call it wire-ready cholangiography. So when we shoot a cholangiogram, we're using a six-French ureteral catheter, and we shoot our cholangiogram through that. So if we notice stone, then we just feed a wire down our catheter that we already have access to the cystic duct with. And after you get wire access through the common duct into the duodenum, you can do an array of things. You can use balloon dilator and do balloon sphincterplasty. If you have a cholidocoscope, you can advance that over the wire. And you can start with small interventions. A lot of times you can just take your ureteral catheter, advance it over the wire, and just park it. 
right over your sludge or your very small stones and just power flush those through. Not everything needs a big formal common duct exploration. There's really small interventions. And if that proximal power flush doesn't work, well, you already have wire excess. You can just bump up to your next technique. You can do your balloon dilation. If that doesn't work, then you step up to the next thing and maybe use cloidocoscopy and lithotripsy. And maybe you don't feel comfortable with these things, but a majority of the stones that are small or medium or just sludge can be managed by very simple interventions that basically every general surgeon has in their toolbox. It's just using Seldinger technique. Use the small, simple interventions and work your way up from there. Majority of everything we're talking about is done transistically. So if you try and do this and you fail, just take your wire out and clip the cystic duct and be done with your operation. You haven't lost anything. You haven't had to leave a T2. So I think that's important to know that you can just start with these really simple, small interventions transistically and kind of work your way up. The other thing I'd say too about the use of some of these newer technologies like the disposable colloidocoscope is that's not an inexpensive piece of equipment. It costs a lot of money. And so the last thing you want to do is reach for that right out of the gate and find out that you can't get it into the, the biliary tree at all, you know, because then you've just burned, you know, a, a good bit of money and everybody leaves a little bit frustrated. Um, so I think that that just advocates for using simpler techniques first. Uh, and, and I think it's important to make sure that you're not catching anybody by surprise, thinking about setting the foundation. We talked about the carts and some of the educational prep that goes into employing these techniques well in your institution. And part and parcel with that goes the, the need to develop good collaborative relationships and get some buy-in, at least in some degree with the endoscopists. They don't have to completely agree with it. And there is some data that they might share with you why they think this is maybe not the best idea. That being said, it's a team sport, right? And if the patient's well-being and the efficiency and health of the healthcare system are first and foremost, then I think you can find a lot of common ground. So you mentioned creating a cart. It sounds like you have the urethral sex French catheter in there. What else are equipment that you like to have to make sure it's ready at hand as you go about this approach? I think everyone's cart is going to be a little bit different based on what you have available at your institution. What we typically keep is six French ureteral stents. We place these with a 12-gauge angiocath through the abdominal wall. I know Dr. Santos likes to use Olsen clamp to complete his cholangiograms, but we just clip our ureteral stent in place. We have an 035 hydrophilic guide wire. Obviously, we have laparoscopic clips that are brought on the field. We also keep balloon dilators that we use to dilate the sphincter. We have typically six millimeter balloons and eight millimeter balloons on our cart, which we can get into a little bit more about balloon anatomy and how you make sure you select the right one. And then we also have incorporated in our practice using the disposable cholidocoscopes that are available, the spyglass. So we have all of those items that are needed to use and run the spyglass equipment. A few other things, we have simple things like three-way stop clock with extension tubing and, you know, lure lock syringes. I would just add one thing, and I'd be interested to hear Dr. Santos's comments about this. We do have on our cart Nidenol wire retrieval baskets, and these are generally 2.4 French. They're pretty small. They fit through the, the catheters. One thing that we've realized is I think they're great and they're really helpful in the right situation, but we tend to burn a lot of fluoro time 
trying to grasp stones with those baskets. It, you know, it's a technique that's actually a little bit difficult and the frustration and the pain points can, can be magnified, especially when you're running a lot of fluoro and you know that you're exposing that patient to extra radiation. One thing that we found too is when we use the spyglass technology, being able to, to grasp those stones if they're minimal to being grasped with the retrieval basket and just driving them straight into the duodenum is something that we found really helpful. But we have just not reached for the, the night and all wire baskets as much as I thought we would. And that's actually a good thing because we can use a lot more spot imaging and a lot less fluoro time as we deploy balloon sphincterplasty and, and flushing. But I'd be interested to hear what Dr. Santos has to say about that. I actually don't do any fluoro-guided basketing for a couple of reasons. I do mention it's actually harder than it seems because you can't see the baskets very well. You don't always have a direct uh, visual on where the stone is. You almost indirectly have to find it. And so I, I don't use that technique. I've seen other authors actually publish that it, that it is hard to use. My approach for transistic really depends on the anatomy of the cystic duct. If it's big enough to use a scope or if it's only big enough for fluoroscopic interventions. We have primarily gone towards full anti-grade clearance of the stones. So the idea of passing them through the papilla rather than pulling them out through the cystic duct. And this really came about because we were we were seeing that sometimes the cystic duct is just small compared to the size of the stone, or it might be just barely big enough to get your scope down, but then trying to basket things is going to be more difficult. We've even had a couple wire baskets get stuck intra-op that we've had to free up. So uh, all of those unpleasant experiences, I think, really caused us to evolve more towards full integrate clearance. One of the big interventions that has really driven our integrate clearance has been balloon sphincterplasty. This basically allows you to loosen up the sphincter, and if the stones aren't flushed through, if you've got a scope, you can pop them through. We call that the snowplow. You can also do a fluoroscopic snowplow, we actually take a balloon extraction device. It's essentially a Fogarty over wire. It's used by endoscopies during ERCP to pull the stones out. We use it by pushing it over wire so that you can actually pop through any little debris after your sphincterplasty. So really the big decision in our mind is, are we going to only have fluoro options or scope options? We rarely anymore use the scope-guided basket to pull stones retrograde for the reasons I mentioned. It's very, very easy to access with the balloons because uh, they're so small, much easier than accessing with the scope. So I still like to use the scope if I can to confirm and be able to see. And I think that uh, in some ways our technique has evolved um, towards less scolotocospy. Could you speak a little bit more to the technique of the balloon sphincteroplasty and as well as if any of you have any experience forming the lithostripsy as well? I think we can talk to balloon sphincteroplasty. We have a pretty big experience with it at Wake. We actually published a technique paper that we can get a link for everyone to that describes our balloon sphincteroplasty technique that was published in the Journal of Trauma and it has some good figures that can kind of help walk everyone through it. But like I said, the first thing that we do is gain wire access. And once we've advanced a ton of wire all the way down into the duodenum, we then choose a balloon dilator based on the size of the pathologically dilated common bile duct. If your common bile duct is dilated to eight or nine millimeters, you're not going to dilate up to, you know, 10 or 12 millimeters. So you have to pick the right balloon, the right size for your patient. So once you've chosen the correct balloon, 
will advance the balloon over the wire, under fluoro, all the way into the duodenum. And we'll use a rotational inflation device that has contrast. And we blow up the balloon once we see it in the duodenum. And, you, and it has radio opaque markers on the balloon, so you can note these on fluoro. The reason we advance the balloon all the way into the duodenum first is once you start manipulating the common duct with catheters and wires, where you think your sphincter is based off your original cholangiogram, it's not going to be in the same spot. So we like to blow up the balloon once it's all the way into the duodenum and pull back under fluoro because then you'll have kind of a visual and tactile feedback about where your sphincter is. And after we have a good idea about that, we'll deflate our balloon and pull it back slightly under fluoroscopy. And once we feel like it's in a good position, then we'll reinflate the balloon slowly and bring it up to profile. And when you're across the sphincter, you'll see a waste in your balloon and you'll see this waste pop open. At wake, we dilate from somewhere between three to five minutes. I know Dr. Santos also likes to dilate for longer, closer to five minutes, thinking that this may decrease your chance of pancreatitis. You're slowly stretching those muscle fibers rather than snapping them open. And after you get somewhere between a three to five minute dilation, we deflate our balloon and pull it back to the cystic common duct junction. Once you're there, you can slightly inflate the balloon to occlude the proximal duct, and you can shoot a cholangiogram through your balloon catheter. At that point, to shoot the cholangiogram, you do have to remove the wire. So everything that we were doing was maintaining wire access while we were manipulating the balloon. But once we've done the dilation and we're ready for that final cholangiogram, we'll remove the wire. And we'll shoot a cholangiogram through the balloon catheter and kind of pressurize everything forward and hopefully flush all your stones forward into the duodenum. We actually used a very similar uh, technique, almost identical. We actually believe in the five-minute uh, dilation time and also balloon size uh, matters. So if you look at the ERCP literature, there are multiple meta-analysis, more than 25 randomized control trials, literally thousands of patients looking at the question of how uh, balloon sphincterplasty done at the time of ERCP compares to sphincterotomy. And what emerges is that balloon size matters. So larger balloons actually give you less pancreatitis. If you use a balloon 10 millimeters or larger, there's no difference in pancreatitis rate compared to sphincterotomy. If you get start getting smaller balloons, it, it probably does go up. Time also matters. So short dilation time, less than two minutes, higher rate of pancreatitis compared to sphincterotomy. Once you get into the two to five minute mark, and some studies three to five minutes, that's why we prefer five minutes, there's actually no difference in pancreatitis rate compared to sphincterotomy. The theory behind this, as long as you're adequately able to disrupt the sphincter function in the short term, you probably don't have sphincter spasm to the same degree that you would otherwise post-op. Sphincter spasm and pressurization of the pancreatic duct is probably what triggers pancreatitis in some of these patients. And so if you can deactivate the sphincter uh, in the short term, you can probably avoid a lot of that pancreatitis. The other interesting thing is that if you look at uh, long-term uh, sphincter function. And in China, they're actually very interested in these sphincter function pr preservation uh, long-term. They've actually done studies looking at pneumobilia rates uh, six to 12 months after sphincterotomy versus sphincteroplasty. The pneumobilia rates are lower after sphincteroplasty, as long as you stick to a balloon that's not excessively large. Uh, for example, a balloon more than 15 millimeters, uh, which are sometimes used during ERCP for this, they're actually going to lead to more permanent uh, disruption. So that's the other interesting long-term consideration with the balloon versus sphincterotomy. Uh, 
because honestly, if we have 20, 30 year olds out there who are permanently disabling and cutting their sphincter, we don't, we really don't know what's going to happen to those patients, uh, 50, 60 years later. I would also just throw in the large Cochrane meta-analysis of sphincterotomy versus sphincteroplasty. It was done exclusively in the GI literature. They found a higher instance of pancreatitis uh, with balloons. And so that's typically the soundbite that you hear from your GI colleagues if you get in the weeds and start talking about this technique. Uh, but what they don't mention is the fact that that higher instance of pancreatitis was only a couple percentage points more, even though it was significant, uh, given numbers of patients in the meta-analysis. And it was overwhelmingly characterized by mild pancreatitis that did not require additional intervention. So, you know, you have to put all of these things in context as you start to talk about them. Have any of you done the lithotripsy extensively enough to talk about it? Yes, great question. So uh, we've done some laser and one EHL case. This is not often needed. Primarily what we use it for is for really large stones. So we're talking, you know, 10, 12 millimeters or larger. You know, sometimes these, these can be 15 millimeter stones that really are not going to be amenable to these other techniques. So what we have gone towards doing as well is combining the techniques so you can break it up with your lithotripsy and then do a sphincteroplasty to wash out all the fragments. The hardest part about lithotripsy is really just having good colotoscopy skills. If you can drive that scope and visualize and keep the field clear and see what you're doing, keep your probe under direct vision, it's really not that complicated. I think people that struggle with it are the ones that don't have good scope skills. So I think to do these things, it's really useful to have a well-rounded skill set. Uh, a lot of these colloidoscopes, especially the newer disposable ones made by Boston Scientific, do have a working channel that you can use for guide wire access to introduce your, your scope. And I think that really helps. Uh, we've done a handful, maybe five to 10 EHL cases where we've deployed the lithotripter through the disposable colloidoscope. And it's fun. I mean, it's it's really satisfying to see those giant stones blow up, kind of like the Death Star at the end of Star Wars, and then either kind of ream the uh, sphincter with your scope and headbutt some of those larger pieces through, or as Dr. Santos was saying, deploy baskets and stretch the sphincter, facilitate flushing through. What we found with combination of all these techniques, all through the transistic approach, we've been able to clear in our last 21 cases about 95% of those patients. So the effectiveness of all of these things combined in your toolkit through Transistic has gotten a lot better. I think the key is using all of these tools at your disposal can actually get you excellent clearance rates. Now we have the patient post-op. Typically at Wake Forest, uncomplicated gallbladders will just go home from the recovery room. But since we've started doing lap common duct exploration over the past several years, most of these patients will stay in observation for a day. And we've been collecting labs, CMP post-op on these patients, more kind of out of curiosity, more than anything. And what we've found is that the labs post-operatively, the T-billy is all over the place. And it does not ever correlate to whether or not you successfully cleared the duct or not. I think we've had a, several instances where people have gotten nervous after they've done an exploration balloon sphincteroplasty and the T-belly is rising. 
and they send the patient for ERCP and it's negative. And our theory to that is that we're pressurizing the duct when we're in there. It's no surprise that you may have elevation in your LFTs post-op. But what we found is about half the time they're up, half the time they're down, and we can't find any good correlation. And so we're collecting more data, but kind of moving towards not even getting labs postoperatively. One of the things anecdotally that, that I've noticed is that some of the patients that come in acutely, let's say they're got nausea and vomiting, pain prior to the surgery. Afterwards, once they start eating, once they start moving their bowels, we see that the labs actually go down fairly quickly after that. But sometimes if they're sticking around, they might have nausea, they might not be eating yet. Sometimes the labs will lag for a while. So I think that they're unreliable as far as ductal clears, like you mentioned. But I, I think out of habit, we still tend to get them. We talked about how you are taking care of the routine patients that have the laparoscopic common bowel duct expiration. What are some potential complications you've seen after doing this procedure in addition to the lap colate? So one of the things that we actually were doing initially was cystic duct balloon dilation to facilitate passage of the scope into the cystic duct, into the bowel duct, and also removal of stones. This was kind of our initial approach to this. And what we found was uh, we had a case where we actually had a, a cystic duct injury. And this was from the balloon dilation. And this patient unfortunately presented postoperatively with that bile leak. And so we really changed our technique after that. And at this point, we, we really don't do any cystic duct dilation. I feel that that is probably the, the highest risk issue with the technical part of the operation. That also has led us to the reason why we actually prefer a a forward clearance approach. And so I think that's been the big change. I would throw in just one comment about cystic duct dilation. One of the industry training videos shows dilation as a maneuver to gain that room that you need in the cystic duct in order to introduce the scope. Dr. Santos's point is well taken that probably the biggest point of fragility within the entire system is at that junction between the common duct and the cystic duct. So you just have to be extra careful about that. Otherwise, complications that can be seen are those that are similar to ERCP. Right? We worry about pancreatitis. We worry about bleeding. Obviously, you worry about some type of injury to the biliary tree. But the alternative is that the patients can experience these real risks also with ERCP. So we just need to make sure that we're doing the right procedure for the right patient at the right time. The bleeding application is, is an interesting one. It actually, in the GI ERCP world, sphincterplasty actually has much lower bleeding risk than sphincterotomy. And that is seen in meta-analysis. You know, I think as long as you do it slowly, you wait, you know, those five minutes, I think, you know, if you look at the ERCP literature for sphincterplasty, it's probably a 1% or less type event, significant bleeding. Thank you so much for that in-depth description of how to perform a laparoscopic common bowel duct expiration. We'll be posting a video. We've kind of alluded comparing laparoscopic common bowel duct expiration to ERCP without really getting into this app. So let's do that head-to-head -head comparison. Where do we stand when we compare to ERCP for clearing these common bowel duct stones? So if you look at the large meta-analysis, there's really no difference is effectiveness. And there's even a meta-analysis showing a, a slight improvement with surgical technique. So there's really probably no huge difference. And so the thing is, if you look at the details of how these bile duct expirations are done, a lot of these are, are 
not only transistic, but there's in some series a fair number of cholecotomy cases. And so I think this is where we need to understand the details of the technique. Transistic, I think, is going to be by definition less effective than than cholecotomy. That's okay. You know, if you can get to a very reasonable effectiveness, you're saving 80 to 90 percent of those patients in the ERCP. And a lot of the ERCPs being done are really for small stones or even sludge. So a lot of those, it's like overkill. The bottom line is it's the efficacy is equivalent and the safety profile is equivalent. All right. To wrap up our discussion, what do you see next for this technique? We've described this before, but we need to bridge the chasm from the early adopters, the people who are just excited about doing new things, and bridge the chasm to the majority of practicing surgeons around the country. But we need to just make things readily available, like a cart pick list and some of these how-to, simple stepwise techniques and op-note templates, and just lowering what Dr. Neff calls the pain threshold to getting started for everybody. Yeah, I think, Maggie, those are great points. From a technique standpoint, it's really actually very promising. Some of the techniques that we're looking at with forward clearance, with sphincterplasty, because the techniques are extremely effective and they're extremely straightforward once you get some familiarity with the steps and the instruments. So I think that combination is going to lead to an easier technical adoption. The other thing that we have to do is we have to reach residents. If residents learn how to do this, it doesn't matter, you know, how many late adopters or never adopters there are out there. They they will be new residents who are going to be in their shoes. And so I think if we teach residents, we will see a return on the investment uh, down the road. The way that we have to do this has to be creative. We can't use the traditional course model where you fly 10 people across the country, put them up in a hotel, spend thousands of dollars, and at the end of the weekend, only train 10 people that we're never going to have meaningful change that way. So we have to get creative. And COVID, there's one good thing that came from it is our ability to now open our eyes and see the possibilities of distance learning and hybrid didactic and hands-on courses. For our part, I think that the, the way to drive adoption is to go where the patients are, right? And that typically starts with the acute care surgery services at the institutions. And so getting the departmental leads for those service lines engaged and getting them interested in this and showing them the benefit of it is really important. We haven't talked about this, but there is a, a financial reimbursement. You know, that extra time that you're spending making those interventions that we've outlined here actually does affect the bottom line for the surgeon. I think that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, that's something that residents should understand as they attempt to to drive some of these changes and try to, you know, talk to their attendings about setting those foundational pieces in play. As the residents go, so goes the dissemination of the technique. And that's, that's spot on. I think that's it for our discussion. Thank you so much again for joining us on Behind the Knife. We really enjoyed learning about the laparoscopic common ball duct exploration techniques. And hopefully with this podcast, we'll get some more surgeons reclaiming common ball duct stone. Thanks so much. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.